I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. All right, here we go. Welcome to the Wednesday live stream. This is not the normal time for me, but but welcome. Here we go. Um, I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and we're going to be talking today about limited atonement and universalism. And this actually, um, this was just going to be a quick little few minutes into the video, and then I was going to go to Q&A. But as I was preparing for it and realized that as I tweeted out, I'd be talking about limited atonement, um, James White tweeted that he'd be listening. And I thought, well, I better make it better for James White. So um, so yes, we're, uh, we're going to be going a little bit deeper into the issue than I had originally planned but this isn't going to be a complete survey of the topic. Really, it was spurred on by a question asked by one of you, one of my viewers, who asked me about this a specific passage in 2 Corinthians saying, hey, is this limited atonement? Um, how do we respond to that? So I'm going to come out in a minute. First, let me just explain how this will work. If you have questions, you can put them in the live chat. We'll gather some questions, a select group of those questions for me to answer at the end of the stream. Um, if you're James White, hi, Dr. James White. I love you, my brother. But I think you're wrong on this. Let me explain. Um, and uh, yeah, let's just jump into it. So what is limited atonement? Limited atonement, and no matter how I describe it here, someone's going to disagree with me. That's fine. That's okay. Uh, I'll just live with it. Um, but limited atonement is the idea that God only provided payment for the sins of certain people, namely the elect. Uh, that Jesus' death only actually paid for the sins of specific individuals, the ones who would end up believing in him. The rest of the people were not paid for. Uh, some people, when they talk about limited atonement, they don't get into the detail that there's some people who whose sins were not dealt with at the cross. Um, but but that seems to be the the crooks of the matter. Uh, no pun intended. Um, so let me try to bring more clarity to this. And if you didn't like that exact definition, maybe as I explain more, it'll you'll find something you'll like about it. Uh, but it helps clarify this if we consider three different aspects of the atonement. And I want to give some uh, some gratitude to Dr. David Allen, who helped me prepare even for today's video. Um, he's done a ton of work on the atonement. He wrote a couple books on the topic, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But I appreciate him taking some time to spend with me and uh, help me out. Um, but here are three different aspects of the atonement, uh, intent, extent, and application. So there's the intent of the atonement the extent of the atonement, and the application of the atonement. When we say intent, we mean uh, what did God intend when he um, had Christ die on the cross? What was the intent? Um, This is, in other words, who did God want to save? What was God's intention? His his heart's desire was that everyone would be saved. That that would be my opinion on this. The extent of the atonement, which, which isn't just the desire, but rather who was actually paid for. For whose sins did Christ die? Was the provision of Christ's atonement limited to certain people or was it universal? It, 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 its uh, extent is for all people. Did Jesus die only for the elect or did he die for the whole world? Um, and then the third issue is application of the atonement. And that is who actually gets saved? Who actually is going to benefit from the atonement? So I'm going to put a little graph on the screen that I think will, it's, it's not really artsy, but I think it'll help make this clear. What you're looking at right now is um, the idea of limited atonement, universal atonement, universalism. Those are three different positions. And they have different views on what we'll focus on today, the extent of the atonement and the application of the atonement. So for those who hold limited atonement, which is the L in the Calvinist um, tulip, T-U-L-I-P, that, that's like a slogan way of putting the doctrines of Calvinism. There's certainly more to it than that, but that helps helps us 
nail it down what we're talking about. So the L is limited atonement. Most most four-point Calvinists, this is the one that they don't hold to. So this is probably the most controversial within that system. Um, those who hold limited atonement would say that the extent of the atonement, the ones who were paid for, it's only some people. Whereas myself, who holds universal atonement, I would say all people were paid for. And of course, the universalist, who I think is a heretic, would agree with this as well. Um, I don't say that as a joke. I, I, that's my opinion. Um, but then the application of the atonement, the limited atonement, they would agree. All, same thing. Everybody who is paid for was also saved, but it only applies to some people in the world. The application of the atonement as far as universal, and this is the normal historical Christian view, is that while everyone was paid for, only some people actually get saved and receive that salvation. Um, whereas the universalism position, which you'll understand why I'm bringing this into the conversation a little bit later, they would say not only was everyone paid for, but everyone will end up in heaven. Everyone will be saved. Okay, so those are like the three different views on those issues. I hope that becomes clear because now what we're going to do is talk about uh, one particular text we're going to highlight, and that's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll put it on your screen in a minute, um, but I'll, I'll say this first. Um, it seems that the majority of the reasons people offer for limited atonement to support this particular doctrine is um, philosophical reasoning. It's not based upon, here's what the scripture teaches clearly about limited atonement. It's rather, here's what the Bible says about other issues. And I think logically, when we apply that to limited atonement, we get the doctrine of limited atonement. I'm not really planning on covering that kind of stuff today because I'll just say, I, I think I can trump that logic or that philosophy by saying, even if you feel your logic and theology is good, if the Bible disagrees with you, you should reconsider that that logic may be wrong about how you're applying one doctrinal truth to a different doctrinal question. So we're going to go to the text of scripture specifically, and we'll talk about that today. Again, this is the Wednesday live stream. Normally I do Tuesday live streams. Uh, I didn't make yesterday, so I replanned it for today. I was going to do something real quick and easy, but I decided to dig in deep um, and because it, well, it's a good idea, and it makes it more worthwhile for you guys, and it was actually fun to do. So here's the text we're going to cover. It's based on this question that came in from one of my viewers. Hey, Mike. Does 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 and 15 teach limited atonement? The train of thought is this. All that Jesus died for, died. Not everyone dies with Jesus. Therefore, Jesus didn't die for everyone. I'm not a Calvinist, but I just want to understand this. Um, this is a deep theological question. I could I could give a super simple answer, a short one, but I feel like it, it's worth more time and energy. So I'd like to do that today. Let's go to the text itself. We're going to go to um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 14 and we're going to look at it and while we're on our way there um, I just I've been changing some things with the the way I'm doing my live stream and I would love your guys feedback I got a new microphone here and this should improve the quality because I'm in a, I'm in my home office here so it's noisy and there's things going on and this is supposed to isolate that sound better um, and we added a little bit of sound panels in the walls just to try to improve the audio quality for you guys I'd love to hear your feedback if it's um, if it's actually better that's the thing I'd like to know, um, or worse, or if you hear poofing or puffing, you know, those, those plosives, they call them. If you hear that, let me know. Cause in my testing, I didn't hear that stuff. All right. So here we are. This is the passage. Second Corinthians five fourteen. for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Okay, so here's how the logic I think goes. 
this is the questioner's understanding of the Calvinist position. I think this is a typical view of someone who has limited atonement. They would say, hey, um, whoever's the all that Jesus died for, those are also the all who died. And not everyone has died in Christ. Not everyone is saved, is, is crucified with Christ. And therefore, the first all has to be equated with the second all. And the second all can't be everybody. So the first all isn't everybody either. He died for all of the elect is what then the conclusion would be. So that would give us limited atonement. Um, that, that would be, I think, basically the, the logic and the thinking that we, that we have there. But I would actually, I would actually say, let's, let's say that this interpretation is correct. I'm going to argue against it in a moment, but let's just pause for a minute. It's nice to think these things through just patiently. Let's say that this interpretation is right. And that the one uh, is Jesus, obviously, who died for all, which was, which if that interpretation is, interpretation is right, is just the elect. And, um, and therefore the elect have also died with him. If that's the case, then that's an affirmation that Jesus died for all believers. It's not an affirmation that Jesus didn't die for others who are not believers. It's telling you, he, if you're going to interpret all to be all the elect, then it affirms he died for the elect, which we agree with. It doesn't mean he didn't die for others. Um, some people term this the fallacy of negative inference, or it's basically saying just because it says he did die for this group, that doesn't mean he didn't die for that group. Let me give you an example. Galatians 2.20 Paul says that Jesus died for him personally. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So according to Galatians 2.20, Jesus died for Paul. Now it would be, it'd be wrong to say because he died for Paul, he didn't die for you or for other people. So affirming that he died for one group doesn't mean he didn't die for another group. Um, so that I think is pretty important, but I also think that the interpretation that we were just given in, in 2 Corinthians 5.14 is just not correct. So I'm going to walk you through what I think it actually means, what I think is wrong with this interpretation, and how I think answering this question gives us a beautiful understanding of the atonement of Christ, its extent and its application. Then I'm going to give you several other scriptures, follow with me here, this, this the format's important. I'm going to give you several other scriptures that will help support and bolster this interpretation I'm giving you because the interpretation works not only in 2 Corinthians, but it works in a lot of places throughout the Bible. And that's kind of how you can tell you you're getting good theology, right? Is you apply the same principles to different passages and it's consistently accurate. It, it holds true. Okay, so here we go. Here's what I think is wrong with this interpretation. Um, I think all is all people in both uses. I think in the first one, Christ died for all. I think we're talking about all people. And I think in the second one, therefore all have died. We're also talking about all people. I think all of them. I think the difference here is, and, well, and you might think, wait a minute, Mike, that's universalism. You're saying that everybody, Jesus died for everybody and everybody died and therefore everybody's saved. No, I'm definitely not because I'm going to point out to you the difference between extent versus application. The extent, remember our little graph? There's our little graph. The extent of Christ's death is he dies for all and all die. That's the universal atonement. Yet the application is a separate issue and we're going to come to that. That's actually going to be my focus. Um, this is why it's not universalism. Um, in extent, 
all died because Jesus successfully atoned for everyone. So he, in their position, died for them. So all died. That's just what it means that he died. Who did he die for? Everyone. So therefore, everyone died when Christ died. That's the condition theologically. That's the extent of the atonement. It's universal. So all is all in both passages. It means all people or in both um, phrases of that sentence. In application, though, only those who repent and believe will benefit. Because the gift already purchased must still be received. The application of the atonement is not universal. So it's universally provided, but not universally applied. So the, here's the question now. That's that's the difference between extent and application. I think I've made that pretty clear. But the next question that I would have if I was listening to me right now is, okay, Mike, that's cute. But can you get it from the text? Can you show me that there is an extent versus application contrast in this exact passage in 2 Corinthians 5? And I think that absolutely I can. Um, and so that's going to be what I'll do uh, right now momentarily. Let's get back, get um, the scripture back up on the screen for you there. Okay, so um, 2 Corinthians 5, that was verse 14 and 15. We're going to look now in the same context. We're going to go down a few verses to verse 18 and read through verse 21. And we'll see that this extant universal versus application, not universal, um, that this is what's being Uh, contrasted throughout the passage. So verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That sounds like a universal salvation, right? No, no, no. That's universal atonement in extent. It extends to all people not counting their trespasses against them and not and and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation therefore we are ambassadors for Christ god making his appeal through us we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to god so we have in verse 19 and verse 20 these two phrases that are really important one says that the world was reconciled to god when jesus died on the cross the whole world everybody sinners in fact, sinners is the idea. All the wicked people of the world. The world is not the elect. In any passage of scripture, the world is not referring to the elect. It's referring to the world system, those who were in rebellion to, against God, and God reconciled the world to himself through the cross. Then we have in verse 20, we go out appealing to people, now be reconciled. That's application. Jesus extant, he reconciled the world. Jesus in application now to apply that to your life. You need to come to God. You need to repent and believe. You need to trust in him. But the 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 uh, the deal's already been struck. The payment's already been made. The the cost has already been, you know, accomplished. So that's the idea. And it's right here in the same passage. Verse 19, reconcile the world to himself, universal atonement. Uh, verse 20, Paul pleads and appeals, be reconciled to God. And who is he pleading with? He's pleading with people who are already reconciled in the extent of the atonement right? The objective fact that Jesus has paid for everyone, that's already taken care of, but he's pleading with you as individuals, now come and be reconciled. Jesus paid for sin, now you give your life to Christ. It's already been accomplished. You just need to turn and believe. Now, some might not like the idea that Paul is pleading with people, and and I know some would say that this is not how evangelism works. You don't plead with people, but that's exactly what he does. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, cower. He doesn't present some sort of weak sauce version of Christianity, but at the end of it all with coming judgment and with God's atoning sacrifice through Christ, he pleads with him, please come to Jesus, please for your sake, turn to Christ. And um, yeah, powerful stuff. There's another point I want to make here. And that's that um, 
Paul doesn't just give us universal atonement here in this passage. He applies it. And this is, this is important because um, how, we how we apply this concept tells us what our real theology is. When you take your theology and you apply it, well, if you want to interpret Paul to mean something other than this sort of objective, you know, God has paid for all people, that's the extent of salvation, versus the subjective experience of each individual person receiving Christ to be saved, the application. If, if you want to hold that view, then you, you can have a consistent application of 2 Corinthians 5. If you hold a different view, I think the application gets muddied and how Paul applies it isn't how you apply it. Let, let me explain. I feel like I confused a few people there just now. So let me explain. Um, Paul takes the idea, God has reconciled us to himself. He's reconciled the world to himself. That was what God was doing in Christ. And then he gives the application. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, right? Therefore, we're, we're imploring you on Christ, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Because Jesus paid for everybody, universal atonement, they're going to go out and tell everybody, now give your life to Christ so that you can actually be reconciled experientially. The, the, uh, the objective fact is taken care of, but your experience of experiencing salvation, that needs to happen next. That's how Paul seems to apply these concepts. So it's really consistent. We have all the way through this passage, really consistent, the same concepts that I'm trying to, um, to, to say, give us validation for viewing verse 14 as saying, um, there's verse 14 as saying that, uh, that one has died for all. That's all humanity. Therefore all died, all humanity. Yet that doesn't mean they're all saved because they have not yet come to Christ. That's an individual thing that needs to happen. So this is, this is powerful. Now, Paul, he takes the universal atonement of Christ and he uses it as motivation to evangelize. But if you hold a limited atonement, it makes evangel evangelization a little bit confusing. Um, think about it this way. Jesus really didn't pay for everybody. I mean, he could have. Potentially, he could have paid for everybody, but he didn't actually pay for everybody. So when I go witnessing to people and I tell them, Jesus died for you, I don't know if that's true or not. Because in that view, limited atonement, he only died for the elect. So I don't think that it stirs up the kind of evangelism Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. You can say, don't get me wrong, because I've heard Calvinists say this, who go, I'm still going to evangelize. I don't know who the elect are. It's not up to me. I'm just going to, in faith, share. But this is like a, I might accidentally share the gospel with the unsaved while I'm trying to get to the elect, right? But when I tell them, Jesus really loves you. God wants you to be saved. Turn your life to Christ. Jesus died for you. These things aren't actually true for a large portion of my audience. And so that doesn't, doesn't look like what Paul's doing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I think limited atonement here is not holding up to the text. And just so you guys know, uh, there's plenty of Calvinists that, are, that don't hold to limited atonement. Plenty of them who don't. Um, then finally, this passage, it's going to end with um, another statement that reinforces the universal extent and non-universal application of the atonement, and that's in verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, he just, he, God made him to be sin. This is like a, uh, the totality of Christ's sacrifice. He deals with sin, end of story, that we might become the righteousness of God. That's, that's the idea. Universal atonement, not, however, application, universal application of atonement. 
Um, so that's, I think that that's just consistent all through the passage in Second Corinthians and what some would use as a proof text to prove limited atonement, I think actually comes against them when you really carefully analyze it thoughtfully. But there's a lot more I want to share with you guys, a lot more <laughs> before we get to your questions. So don't get, don't get ahead of me. Um, all right, let's see here. Um, there's some objections to this interpretation that I've offered you guys today. One is that all died, all died is a special phrase that can only be used of one who is saved. And I'll go back to verse 14 so you can look at what I'm talking about. Yeah, Mike, I don't, you know, I get your, I get your understanding. I get that Jesus may have died for all. I get that. I'll, I'll even say that, but you can't say all have died, but that's, this is where I think we're mistaking. Uh, it, it's not a statement that, um, that all have become saved through Christ and are experiencing the full benefits of salvation. Rather, it's, it's the logical conclusion of what it means that Jesus died for all. If he died for you, then you died. That's him dying for you. So you died. So he took your place. That's all we're saying is Jesus took the place of everyone. That's the idea. Um, I, I think that that's, that's the clear understanding of the passage. And the truth is you would say, well, you can only say of Christians that they're reconciled to God. And I would, I would actually agree. But here, verse 19 says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So there's a sense in which we're reconciled, but we must be reconciled. One's, you know, the objective atonement, one's the application or the subjective. Um, then there's also a sense in which all died. That's what Christ did on the cross for all people. And then there's a sense in which you come to Jesus and then you can finally say for yourself, I've been crucified with Christ. And that, that's when you've got the experience of the atonement in your own life. So I think that that answers that objection. You might even say like, well, when did you die with Christ? Well, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't even alive when Jesus died 2000 years ago. Yet in a sense, I died 2,000 years ago. Yet, when I came to Christ and I put my faith in him, it was like then that I was born again. And it's, it's, in a sense, it's then that I died with Christ. or then that I, It was then that I moved in my subjective experience, in my experience in life. It was then that I moved into the objective fact of Christ's universal atonement. Boom. Theology. Like, I think it's good. I think it's solid. I think it's consistent. And... Um, I have more for you. There's other passages in the scripture that, that get across this same idea of the um, universal. Um, oh, sorry. I'm, I'm working on getting this scripture up for you. I must have typed something wrong because I'm talking while typing. Um, this idea of the universal extent, but not universal application of the atonement. Colossians 1.20 is one of these verses. Colossians 1.20 says, For through him... And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, you might be like, with me saying, wow, that really looks like he's talking about everything was reconciled in Christ. And yet we know from other texts that not everyone experiences the reconciliation of joining with God for all eternity. Because that's the difference between extent versus application. But just in case you're thinking, well, that doesn't really mean all things. That just means the elect or something. Well, I don't think that that's the case. If we back up a little bit in verse 16, we can see in context how all things are being used in Colossians 1. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of, the de- of, of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. So 
the reconciliation, the blood of the cross was over all created everything, which includes humans, all humans. But does that mean universalism? And some people will try to take a passage like that and use it for universalism. And the answer is no. Look at how it's applied as we just keep reading down into verse 21. And you who were once alienated, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, if indeed you continue in the faith Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been pro proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So it's universal. He, he paid for everything. All of creation was, was bought at the cross. And it'll apply to you if you have faith, genuine faith. You continue in true faith in Christ. So we have universal extent, but not universal application. There's an if that goes on there. Another passage that gives us the same thing is Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to, the, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now this seems to be giving us the idea that everyone, everyone is universally dealt with at the cross. And I think that is what it's saying. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. So everyone, that, that would be Adam's trespass, ended up leading to all of us being condemned. One act of righteousness, justification for all men. Well, you can't say that verse 18 is only talking about the elect. I mean, this doesn't make any sense in the text. It's talking about just everybody. As by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So the many that are made righteous will be made righteous from Christ is related to the many that were made sinners. So that's, that's interesting, right? But it doesn't mean universalism. It's just speaking of the atonement, the atoning universality of Christ, but not the application to every individual as though they'll all be saved. Verse 17, if we read for a little bit more context, if by one man's trespass, death reigned through, the, through that one, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Did you notice that careful word there? To, I'll put a couple words up. Those who receive. Not everybody. Those who receive. That's the idea. You have to receive Christ. You have to trust in Christ. This is why in the same book, Romans 10, 13, Romans 10, 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, and so it's, it's not this universal salvation thing. It's a universally uh, extant atonement thing and then applied to those who believe and trust in Christ, which is why it motivates us to share the gospel, just like it, it did to Paul. Um, there's some other scriptures I want to share with you that give us give us the same idea because I think what happens is when you understand this concept, there's a lot of verses that make a, a lot more sense to you now. And it keeps you from falling into what I think are two errors. One would be limited atonement as a doctrine. The other would be universalism, which is also a grievous error. And I think I have a cat in my eyeball. Okay, there we go. Sorry, I just rubbed my eye for a second. Um, John 1 29, it says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, not the elect. It's of the sin of the world, this universality of what Jesus is doing. That's, that's whose sin he takes away. The sin of the world. 
Now, you again, you could say, oh, well, that's then that's universalism. Well, no, look at verse 12. Same chapter. We're just going up a little bit. So we're in the same book, same chapter, a few verses up. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So it, so while the, the, the um, sacrifice of Christ is for all, it is only going to be applied to those who believe, who receive. Same thing, same context. Um, we're getting this in multiple different passages, the same balanced view of the universal extent and the uh, limited application of the uh, d- sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Oh, I could give you guys more um, more scriptures. Um, let's see, there's 1 Timothy 4.10. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. How does that make sense? He's the Savior of all, especially of those who believe. Well, I think he's the Savior of all, universal extent. He's especially of those who believe, not universal application. That's... It just, it makes a lot of this stuff make a lot of sense. A lot of sense. This is why, for instance, 2 Peter 2.1 can say um, about false prophets, these guys are clearly not saved, right? 2 Peter 2.1, it says, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So they're denying Christ, so they're clearly not saved, but Christ is the master who bought them, who bought them. The them is the false teachers who are destined for destruction. So the purchase of, of their, of their salvation was accomplished by Jesus. He didn't just die for the elect there. He died for even these heretics, even these uh, apostate false teachers who have future judgment coming their way, who deny Jesus. He bought them too, but they're certainly not saved not in the final sense, not in the application sense, because they have swift destruction coming their way. So I think this is just a lot of scriptures that give us a lot of good reason to take this view of um, uh, universal uh, extent, but not universal application, and avoid the two errors of limited atonement on one end, which you, you don't even you don't even have to be you don't have to leave Calvinism to leave a limited atonement aside. You can just set that one thing aside, um, be a four-point Calvinist if you like. Um, I'm just saying, I, I'm not saying you should be or shouldn't be. I'm just saying I don't want to cover more than one issue at a time here. And that issue of limited atonement, that's an error here. Universalism is also a grievous error. Um, and that obviously is not the case. This is definitely not universalism. Um, so um, the, uh, the, the gentleman who's helped me with a lot of this stuff, uh, Dr. David Allen, who gave me some great tips and stuff and sent me some of his stuff, um, I may actually bring him on for a discussion on the topic of limited atonement. Um, he's written extensively on the issue. He has a book called The Extent of the Atonement, which deals with uh, a lot of historical analysis of the atonement over time, as well as dealing with a whole lot of objections and, objections and challenges. Then he has a book called The Atonement, which is more of a broad teaching on the topic of the atonement. And I think I might bring him on if you guys are interested uh, in me doing that for an interview. Um, he said he'd probably be willing, so we can see if that'll work. But I have one more scripture I want to cover with you guys, and then we'll go to your questions. Um, the scripture is 1 John 2, 2, because the same listener who sent me this question also sent me a question about 1 John 2, 2, and was just asking, hey, Mike, um, is 1 John 2, 2, is, does, that, does that refute limited atonement? And I've been trying to save, uh, save this for the end, because I think it really does, and I think it does so in a pretty um, profound way. 
So here's 1 John 2, 2. It says of Jesus, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This on its surface seems, I mean, I think, you know, even those who affirm limited atonement would, would, would agree with me on the surface. It sure looks like it's saying that Jesus propitiated not only for my sins, but for the sins of the whole world and the whole world, you know, seems like it would be the bad guys, right? Like the unsaved people who are, are, are currently in rebellion to God. That would be the idea, at least in John's day. Um, now, some people, they would interpret this to say, no, no, no. It just means saved people from every nation, not the whole world. It means all people without distinction, not people without exception. So, you know, all, all people, the world. So some people from, from the United States, some people from Mexico, some people from Somalia, some people from Australia, some people from France. See, not everybody, just certain, just people from every type of location. Well, the problem with this, this phrase, though, um, and I hear it sometimes, is all without distinction rather than all without exception, is that if you really mean all people without distinction, then you do mean all people without exception. Because if there's no distinctions between people, then you don't mean some from France, some from Somalia, because now we're making distinctions, those are distinctions between people. That This doesn't really seem to make sense. It's like a a difference, a distinction without a difference is the thing. Um, if it's really all without distinction, it's also all without exception, it seems. But um, I think we have more support for this. Um, for my for my perspective against, against this interpretation. But I want to offer, oh, before I get into that, and I thought I had... Let me see if I have another image I can put on the screen for you guys. There was actually a, a Calvinist website that I looked up that had this exact verse and they had a discussion on it. And they were saying that they thought, hey, this is, um, there it is. I do have it. Okay, let me just bring it over for you guys to see it. Um, they were saying that this 1 John 2, 2 passage, if you actually interpret it right, then you're going to interpret it by comparing it to John 11, 51 and 52, 51. 11, 51, and 52. And if you do this, I'll put it on your screen, make it real big for you. Then you get the refutation of what seems to be the obvious reading of 1 John 2. So in 1 John 2, comparing it to John 11, 1 John 2 says, These things I write unto you, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And there's a parallel passage in John 11. It says that Jesus was prophesied. He would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also for the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, the, the conclusion that this Calvinist website was coming to was to say, um, and I'll give you the name of the website if I can find it here. I'm not trying to hide their name. Thirdmill.org was the site I found it on. Um, at any rate, their conclusion is, hey, look, these are parallel passages. Therefore, 1 John 2, 2, when it says, for our sins, it means the Jewish nation. And when it says, not for ours only, but also for the whole world, what it means is, not for the Jews only, but also for all the children of God who are scattered abroad. Okay, that, I'll admit, like that, that sounds pretty good. That sounds pretty good. Except that the terminology is so different. They're, they're parallel in the way the word, the sentences are constructed, but the terminology is radically different. Just first John, when first John says the world, the whole world, does it really mean the children of God who are scattered around the world? And I think here, all we have to do is look at first John. So 1 John 2, 2, that's the first occurrence of the word world. But as we go on in the text, we get it again. For instance, in John 3, 1, 1 John 3, 1, 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Okay, well now the world, obviously in 1 John, the world is not talking about believers who are scattered around the world outside of the city or, or the land of Israel. That's not what it's talking about. Okay, well let's let's go to another text. 1 John 3.13 Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Okay, well that's obviously not talking about, you know, believers scattered abroad. We're, we're talking here about the ungodly, those who've rejected God, who hate Christians as a result. In John 4.3 it says, He left Judea, oh, Wrong, wrong book. First John 4, 3. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming in and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. So the, the world is, is those who are under the control of the enemy, those who are in rebellion to God, and the world listens to, to, the, to the evil antichrist spirits. That's the idea of the world. So First John, very, very clear. He's speaking of a world system of people who are in rebellion to God. So when you go, when you go back to First John 2.2, 2, he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world it's clear that in this text, it is not talking about children of God scattered abroad. It's talking about the world, the ungodly world. Jesus is the propitiation for them as well. This is definitely not any kind of limited atonement. I'll give you one more verse in John. 1 John five nineteen. We know that we are from God and the whole world, the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Now, why is this significant? Because it's not just a phrase about the world. So we can see how 1 John uses the phrase world. But it's a phrase about the whole world, which is the exact wording that he used in 1 John 2, 2, saying that Jesus has propitiated for the whole world. Here in the same book, he says the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. So this is clearly not a limited atonement verse. It's a, it's a universal atonement, but it only applies to those who put faith in Christ. That's the application. This is good stuff. And here's some homework for you if, if you disagree on this, on this exact concept. Find one place in the Bible. In the, in the Bible period, right? Where the word world, cosmos, the word, that's a New Testament Greek term, where that word clearly means the elect, right? Even, even the Calvinist, uh, who I greatly respect, a guy named D.A. Carson, he also says that there's no place in the scripture where the word world means the elect, that there's just no place at all where this happens. Um, I'm going to go to your guys' questions right now. I, I hope that that's helped a little bit. I think we can avoid some of the errors uh, of universalism, which is grievous and dangerous errors, dangerous errors, and the errors potentially of um, limited atonement, which I do think is an error. And I, I respectfully submit this because many of you who follow my content and you respect me, you're Calvinists and you love Jesus and you love the glory of God. And I'm so on board with you here. But what I'm doing is I'm trying to plod through the text of scripture to, to just evaluate one element of Calvinism, not even the whole thing, just one element of it. And I'd love to get your guys' feedback right now. Um, I got a bunch of questions, so let me just start digging in. I have to scroll through and find the first one here. Okay, Our Wholesome Home says, Do you think Christ died and rose for all children? Do you have scripture that makes you believe this? Um, I think Christ died and rose for everyone. Everybody. Everybody. This would obviously include children. 
Um, so yeah, I think the verses I shared with you earlier, this may have been asked early in the stream. So the verses I shared earlier on give us this idea that Christ died for the world. Uh, Amada says, is there a difference between backsliding and falling away using Hebrews 6.4 as an example of falling away? Um, well, I think, okay, colloquially, right? Because backsliding isn't really so much a careful theological term. Backsliding, I would view as um, a person is just, they're doing worse in their spiritual state than they were previously. They feel like they're sliding back. I'm, 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 I'm not doing as good, you know, as I was spiritually speaking. My life has gone downhill instead of uphill. So you're backsliding. That's at least how I use the term. Other people use it differently. Um, falling away here would be someone who is like apostatized. Like they've denied Christ. They've walked away from Christ. Like they've denied the doctrines and the, the faith of Christ. That would be the idea. Um, as far as Hebrews 6.4 goes, um, it would be an example of the latter, not the earlier. Um, Samuel Park. Um is not universal atonement incompatible with God's omnipotent, omniscient, and all-loving nature. It seems the logic of God must entail universal salvation for his sick children. Um, okay, so let's, let me just walk through this a little bit. The basic idea I'm getting from Samuel's question is the idea that um, if God knows everything, and God is all-powerful, and God loves, really, really loves everyone, then he has to save everybody. It just, otherwise he doesn't really love them all. And then the, and then the sort of emotional weight put on the question is the reference of, to fallen humans, sinful humans as sick children. I think sick children is, is, a, is a, it reveals maybe a little bit of a bias in the question. Um, the Bible does not present sinners as sick children. So that's not a biblical terminology to use for sinners. Sinners are those who are living in sin and wickedness and we are openly evil. I think God's love, the biblical understanding is that God's love is that he presents atonement for everyone and presents an opportunity for them to receive it and leaves it up to their free will choice whether they'll receive it or not. And I think that that is also a loving thing. And, and um, you can imagine if you're controlling someone else's life, there's a loving way to even let them make bad choices because controlling them against their own free will at all times isn't necessarily loving, even if it's in their best interests. So I think that the answer is um, uh, that no, my answer is no. I, I don't think that those qualities of God being all loving requires that he he force us to receive him and to obey him. Um, yeah. And I also think that God loving humanity isn't the only you know goal of creation and goal of, of the existence of all things. Um, God is also bringing out his glory in judging wickedness in judging wickedness and he glorifies himself through this. And here's where I'm going to, I'm going to sound a lot like a Calvinist and, and I'm happy to do so here. God will be glorified when he judges the wicked in the same way that if, if somebody was like, you know, doing some terrible evil thing, just, just, just in my sight, like down the street from me or something. And they're, they're beating up strangers and they're attacking people. And I run up and I just tackle them to the ground and get them in a headlock and choke them out. I did a glorious thing. I did a glorious thing when I did that. Right. And now that's because of the harm that they were causing. So there's, it's more complicated than that. We're not sick children. We're sinners. We're sinners. And that, that changes everything. Um, let's see. Uh, Austin Avenaki. Um, hey, Austin. He says, <clears throat> hey, Mike, regarding omnism, what key points would you bring up to someone who believes in all religions? I've tried bringing up contradictions between them, but she thinks they don't matter. Um, uh, okay. Well, that's a rough one. Because if, if the idea of omnism is that all religions are true, um, 
and you've 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 gone right down the correct route hey let's compare contradicting statements in various religions like let's take islam and christianity islam god has no son right and jesus he never even died on the cross never rose from the dead that's like a core doctrine in islam those those three things in christianity the opposite is the core doctrine jesus he is god's greatest revelation he's not just a prophet he is god with us he died on the cross he rose again this is core teaching like how do you say both of them are true like this this is a failure in basic thinking um so i don't know what to do with someone like that except maybe a tactic and i'm just gonna throw it out there austin i don't know if this is a great idea but you can think about it maybe get her to tell you what are some of the true things in all religions and just start making a list and actually write out her theology for her whether she understands it or not and then and then start pressing on it say oh well this other religion disagrees with your theology. Now treat it like it's her special religion because in reality, she doesn't agree with any of these religions. She has her own special religion. She's pretending she agrees with everybody, but that's not true. It can't possibly be true. So if you can write down these things and then start confronting, lovingly confronting her with some questions. So when when Hinduism says this, do you think that's true? When Islam says this, do you think that's true? When when you know Jehovah's Witnesses or Christians say this, do you think that's true? And then you can show her that she doesn't even really think all these religions are true. But maybe first get her to write down her actual theology, her beliefs. Um, Jeff Henninger, um, oh, Jeff, I'm reading a comment between my mods in our chat, our group chat. Jeff's one of my mods. I'm sorry, Jeff. Um, all right. We usually we don't have the questions intermixed with your guys' chat, so that's a little confusing for me. Joshua McLaughlin says, does Pastor Mike have a formal argument against belief in the salvation of Jesus just being a social construct? Thanks for all you do. I don't understand. I'm sorry. I don't quite understand Josh, Joshua the question. Um, belief in the salvation of Je- Oh, belief in being saved by Jesus is just a social con- construct. Every argument for Christianity is an argument against that. Um, so the argument for the resurrection, the inspiration of the scripture, um, your personal testimony, transformed life. Um, you know, I did a, we did a video a couple weeks ago of a cumulative case for Christianity with uh, Jonathan McClatchy. All those arguments we listed. Every, every argument for Christianity is effectively an argument against it being a social construct. You can add more to the list too. I, I'm not thinking of it in a formal sense. I haven't done that, but... Um, you could you could say that the um, the core doctrines of Christianity did not develop over time, but were suddenly thrust upon the world at the resurrection of Christ, and all of a sudden we have this new belief system that didn't evolve over time; it just popped into existence. And um, that, if you think about that, that that may be an argument you could use against it being a social construct. Um, yeah, but in a sense. When someone says that Christianity is a social construct, it's a compliment to Christianity because what they're saying is it works. Wow, Christianity really has a positive impact on the social structure of, of the world. And in that sense, I would, you would say, I agree with you there. But what is that? how does that mean that that's all it is? That would be the next uh, question to ask. How does that mean that's all it is? Um, all right, so I'm going to some other questions. Lost my spot here, so just a moment, guys. Okay, um, A String says, I know this is off topic. Can you explain to me when Saul communicates with Samuel from the dead using a medium in 1 Samuel? Mike Winger. So, um, so I'm just reading the question. It just said my name at the end. Um, okay, so in 1 Samuel, I'll give a brief explanation of this passage. Um, Saul is in rebellion against God, and he is God's not communicating with him. God's not speaking to him. And Samuel, the prophet who Saul would lean on and who Saul knew was a mouthpiece for God, Samuel has died and he's gone. 
So Saul, the king of Israel, first king of Israel, he goes to a medium. He finds a medium, even though there was hardly any in the land. This one was still there, a psychic medium, someone who's going to try to channel spirits, right? And this is forbidden. This is an evil thing. And so this medium, uh, the witch at Endor, sounds like a Star Wars movie, um, but the, the witch at Endor, she meets Saul and, and he's in disguise. He's hiding himself so that he will not appear to be the king of Israel because she'll think it's a trap and he, he's going to kill her because he previously persecuted um, these, these people. Now, she decides to channel or try to channel whoever it is that, that um, Saul wants. And Samuel, lo and behold, Samuel appears, some sort of spiritual form of Samuel appears and it blows her away. The interesting thing is the medium herself is shocked. She did not expect this thing to happen, which I think is very telling. She didn't think she would get at least this kind of experience when she was trying to channel. If she had successfully channeled things, I think she was just contacting demons or nothing was happening and it was a hoax because a lot of psychic stuff is that. Um, but at any, at any rate, she doesn't expect Samuel to show up. God sees fit to bring Samuel back just to rebuke Saul, not to help him, not to give him all the advice he needs, just to straight up rebuke him, tell him, you're done. You're done as the king. I'm going to replace you. And um, so the, the bottom line is Saul is in rebellion and he's like basically caught red handed. It's like you go out to sin and then your dad shows up in that place to rip on you. I mean, that's kind of what happens in the passage. Um, that's my short version for the first Samuel passage. Um, okay. Pisces Renewed says, my daughter Jane wants to know if you think Revelation is okay for her to read at the age of seven or is it too mature? Um, I, I honestly have no idea. Uh, seven's really young and um, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't spent enough time with seven-year-olds to be able to make a, a decision like that. So yeah, I'm, I'm Appreciate the question. I would say my gut thought is it's pretty mature. Maybe maybe you could um, talk through some of the passages with your daughter, but I don't know how much of it I would want to set them to read or in the evening or if it's during the day and then you have conversations because it deals with judgment, God judging the world in violence. So this is important for your daughter to know about. Yeah, but... At what point do you want her to read the passage? I don't have the answer to that question. Sorry. Um, Love and Light says, can I ask Mike if he will be doing some teaching on the great falling away? Um, probably not anytime soon because um, uh, it's just not really on my radar right now. So I apologize for that. Um, and I want you guys to know too, I'm trying to answer your questions now in the live chat, but frequently I get questions, these private questions from people, and I'm so sorry to leave you hanging. I just get too many questions and I can't answer them all. So please know it's not because I don't care. It's just because I can't physically do it all. Um, so I do try to make myself accessible here during the live stream, though. That's the best time. Honest Conversation says, if Yahweh doesn't share his glory with anyone, how is it that we received a glorified, we, we receive a glorified body? Um, okay, so God doesn't share his glory with anyone. So I, I guess the I guess the simple answer is me receiving a glorified body isn't like me getting glory for what God has done. I'm not getting glory for what he has done. He's glorifying himself through me, you might even say. Um, and that would be, I guess, the easiest way to look at it. My, and, and glorified here doesn't mean the same thing as God's glory. It means that my body is transformed into a greater state, a more wonderful state. It doesn't mean that I'm being like worshipped or that sort of thing. So the word glory is used in lots of different ways. Uh, this, there's the psalmist, David, he even talks about how he has glory and his glory will praise God. And so he, so in other words, all the glory goes to God. That's the idea. All the glory ends up going to God in the end. Um, Melissa Perez asked a question, says, why does the Bible say we are conscious of nothing when we die? Is that correct? Is it correct for people to think their loved ones are looking over us from heaven? Um, um, I 
I'm trying to think of the passage. It might be Ecclesiastes. I'll tell you what, Melissa, I, I, you ask a big question. I'll answer the second part first and say, is it correct to say that the loved ones are looking over us from heaven? I don't know that we can say that. I don't know that, I'm not saying it can't be the case, but I don't know that it is the case. And I'm not sure that we can have confidence that that is the case. As far as what happens after we die, one of these days I'll do a whole video teaching on it. But, um, I believe that when we die right now, we go right into the presence of God and we're there with him. Um, but we're not receiving our new bodies until a future state, until the future resurrection of the body. But I do think we're with him and we're not in this, that unconscious state. That would be my opinion. Um, okay. Um, okay. I'll, I'll read this last question and then I'm going to give you guys a quick announcement. Uh, Chris Atlantic says, please forgive me, Mike, but in the near future, could you make a response to the prophet of Zod in his magic items video? I think he takes things up, uh, out of topic on that or out of context, I guess. Um, I know who the prophet of Zod is. He's like another one of these atheist YouTubers. Um, as For Christians, you guys, I don't really encourage you to watch these channels, uh, these atheist YouTube channels. It's not healthy for you. Um, and I, and when I, on the occasions when I do watch them, I do so in order to refute them. Uh, I don't do so like for entertainment or so I can like, oh, what's the enemy saying today? Like, that's not really my goal. And I don't think that you should get caught up in these things unless you have a purpose and a, an agenda behind it. Um, it. It's not wise. But um, I'll give that some consideration. I might do something like that. I don't know. There's more videos to refute than I have time to, to even think about refuting them. And what's happening next is this. I'm going to be doing the... Um, uh, continuing the series in Mark, that'll be in the next video I have out. Then I'm going to be doing Tuesday. I'll be doing the continuing my series on the Hebrew roots movement, and um, we're going to look at probably the book of Galatians, dealing with why Galatians shows us that we as followers of Jesus are not under the law, and what that means. And I'm trying to actually use quotes from the Hebrew roots movement to try to respond to to make sure I'm speaking right to the issues. And I said I was going to talk about the issue of is repentance a work today. But I realized I just didn't have time when I compiled everything in. So maybe in the future, I'll make a video on that. At any rate, if you guys haven't, you might want to subscribe um, and you can get notifications. I try to make videos at least twice a week. That's my typical and sometimes more. And um, yeah, I, uh, I appreciate your guys' support. If, if you love what I'm doing and this, this ministry ministers to you and you want to help keep it free, then you can go to the um, video description or just go to my website, BibleThinker.org. And you can, from that website, you can actually offer support. It'll keep me making this content and keeping it free. That's my goal. I don't want any paywall between me and anybody else. I want you to be able to access all my teaching and all my ministry content absolutely free. Um, that's my goal. I want to keep it that way. I'm not planning on selling. If, if I make a, a, a how, to, how to study the Bible course, I want it to be free. If, if, if I write a book, I want it to be free. I know that's crazy. And I don't know if it'll really work, but that's my, that's my agenda. Um, anyways, thank you guys so much. Um, I appreciate you being here and, uh, James White, if you're listening, thanks. Thanks for listening into what I'm saying. I do appreciate it. And, uh, cause he's, he threatened me on Twitter. Oh, I got to show you guys here before I let you go. Here's what James White said on Twitter. He didn't threaten me. I'm, I'm, be I'm being facetious. Um, but I'm going to show you the tweet for those of you who'd like to see it. There it is. So when I tweeted out that I would be dealing with this topic today and uh, James White, who is a well-known Calvinist and a guy who I really respect and love. And, um, and he's just, he's done such great ministry, especially dealing with things like textual criticism. His debate with Bart Ehrman was really good. Um, so he says, just so you know, I'll be listening. <laughs> oh, that's funny. 
What? I sure got shiny. It's it's summertime. That's what happens. Um, so what's going to happen uh, next, perhaps, and maybe I'll we'll deal with this Thea, the Trinitary Harmony thing that you can read. James White had a question about. That wasn't my topic today, so I'm not going to feel like I need to get roped into it. Um, but we can maybe handle that kind of stuff in the future. Um, Calvinism is not really my focus, but I do think it's worth talking about because my goal is to think biblically about everything, and this certainly affects um, our theology. So God bless you. God be with you. Thanks again for joining me. Have a great day.